Acts chapter 10. How many have seen the new film, Jesus Revolution? Uh, there's a picture of it. I think they're going to hold it in our theater another week. If that's your thing, I would encourage you to go see that. It's, it's an amazing, amazing film. It just so happens we are in a text of scripture in our sermon series through the book of Acts. That really mirrors what happened in this film. Jesus Revolution tells this amazing story of the Jesus movement in the late 60s and the early 70s. In 1969, a pastor in Southern California by the name of Chuck Smith is pastoring a church that that is slowly dying because of their inability and, and really their unwillingness to connect with the younger generation. His church is angry, I mean angry, at all the ways the hippie culture is rejecting what they know to be true. Interestingly, this, this, this pastor's daughter picks up a hippie that eventually turned into an evangelist named Lonnie Frisbee and, and brings him to her dad. Lonnie begins to explain to Pastor Smith that, that the music and the sex and the drugs are all signs of spiritual hunger. He says that the hippies are they're just looking for God and, and they don't even know it. He tells Pastor Chuck that his church should learn to welcome the hippies. Share the gospel with the hippies rather than ignoring them and, and avoiding them altogether. And the movie shows that, that after a little bit of that, that, that conviction laid on on Smith's heart, that, that Calvary Chapel, his church, transformed from a place of complaining about the culture to a place where people were engaging the culture with the gospel, whoever the person was, wherever they had been. The, the film relays how during this time, a, a young restless man named Greg Laurie heard the good news and was gloriously saved, and then he became an evangelist. He's actually still a pastor today. The leaders of this movement, we know when you study them and, and even look at some of their doctrine, they were far from perfect as, as any leader is. But, but thousands of people were brought to Christ during the Jesus movement. Especially people that many conservative Christians just assumed were out of the reach of the gospel message. I'd encourage you to watch it for nothing else but to be inspired by, by what can happen when believers reach outside of their comfort zone with the gospel. But as much as I love the movie and as much as I'm thankful for everything that God did through Chuck Smith and Greg Laurie and Lonnie Frisbee, did you know there was a Jesus revolution that took place a couple thousand years before the 1970s? See, the first church and one of the original apostles struggled with the same type of, of, of discrimination that Chuck Smith and his church did. If you know the books of, book of Acts, then you know there are three big movements in the book. The first is in Acts 2 of what we call the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit came on those believers and filled those believers. And on that day, 3,000 people heard the gospel, were saved, baptized, and added to the membership of that church. That's the first movement. The second movement is what we studied last Sunday in Acts chapter 9 with the conversion of a man named Saul. We'd eventually know him as the Apostle Paul, who became one of the greatest missionaries in history, wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. That was the second big movement in the book. The third big movement is in chapters 10 and 11, what we're going to study today. And it's with the conversion of a man by the name of Cornelius. 
Through the Apostle Peter's ministry to Cornelius, God pours out His Spirit on the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the hippies. And He confirms to Peter and the other disciples that the Gospel is not just for some. The Gospel is for all. And here's what we're going to see in our sermon today. And this is such an important point I don't want you to miss. In order to convert Cornelius, in order to show the, 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 the Jewish Christians that the gospel was for everyone without distinction, God had to first convert Peter. Not to Christianity. He was already a Christian. But to the implications of Christianity. Peter had to be convinced that the gospel is for everyone, including those completely outside of his comfort zone, outside of the Jewish nation. In in essence, here's what God had to teach Peter so that he could use Peter to teach the church in a statement. All people can become a part of God's people. Would you say that out loud with me? All people can become a part of God's people. In the end of Acts in chapter 9, we see how how God begins this conversion process in Peter's life. He uses Peter to do some amazing miracles through his ministry. God, you can read it at the end of chapter 9, he demonstrates his power over disease as he used Peter to raise up a lame man who had been sick for eight years. After that, God used Peter uh, as God shut off his power, not just over disease, but over death. And he used Peter to bring a woman by the name of Tabitha back to life. Both of these miracles were setting the stage for the next miracle. Because after having shown us the power of God uh, over disease and the power of God over death, Luke, the writer of Acts, is going to help us now see God's power over discrimination. And it begins with something very ordinary. Look at chapter 9, verse 43. You'll need your Bible open today. And it came to pass that he, that's the apostle Peter, tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon, a tanner. Now you may look at that verse and and not even think anything about it, but it's actually very significant because Peter was staying with a man who Luke not only gives us his name, he gives us his occupation, his name, Simon, his occupation, a tanner. A tanner was someone who dealt with dead animals in order to convert their skins into leather. To the Jews, a tanner was considered perpetually unclean. Yet here was Peter, a Jewish man, in the living room of a tanner. This verse is telling us that that God was already overcoming some of Peter's cultural biases. But he had a long way to go. That's what the narrative is about today. Here's what's interesting. As God is working to convert Peter from discrimination, he is also working in the heart of a seeker by the name of Cornelius to convert him from his sin. Cornelius was just like Simon the Tanner. Cornelius was a a, a Gentile man who, who the Jews would have looked at, not because of his occupation, But because of his family, because of his family tree, because of his heritage, he was looked upon by the Jewish people, even the Jewish Christians in this church. 
as a man that was unclean and outside of their tribe. Four headings as we walk through this narrative together. Heading number one, Cornelius seeks. Look at verse one and two of chapter 10. There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man, and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. We're introduced to Cornelius as a captain of the occupying Roman Roman army. As a centurion, he would have commanded about a hundred Roman soldiers posted in Caesarea. And he would have been paid as much as five times more than an ordinary soldier. So he's a wealthy man and he's an influential man. Jews, however, resented him. Peter resented him because he was part of the army. He led part of the army that had taken over their land. On top of that, he lived in Caesarea. That was the capital of the Roman occupation of Israel. Jews hated Caesarea. But Luke also doesn't want us to miss something else about Cornelius. He had some religious devotion. It said he feared God. That doesn't mean he was a saved man. The term God-fearer was applied to Gentiles who adhered to Judaism's faith in the fact that they believed there was one God and they tried their best to adhere to the Ten Commandments. But men like Cornelius still balked at the Jewish ideas of uh, of their their dietary restrictions and, and submitting to circumcision. So the Jews tended to respect such people, but at an arm's distance. They they were considered to be outside of their circle, not welcome into their tribe or their friend circle, certainly outside of their comfort zone. So it's important to understand, church, that even though Cornelius is a religious man, he's not yet a regenerated man. By the way, it's possible to be religious and not reborn. Kind of like Nicodemus in John chapter 3, devoted to the Old Testament law, respected among his peers. But Jesus looked Nicodemus in the eye and said that you still need to be born again if you're going to get to the kingdom of heaven. And the same was true for Cornelius. I want to stop right here and say this. There are people like Cornelius in our lives. There are people that, that would qualify as being outside of our tribe. Outside of our circle, outside of our comfort zone, outside of our church. Kind of like the hippies were to Chuck Smith and his church. People that today are seeking for truth, seeking for love, seeking for peace, and maybe even looking for it in all the wrong places. But people that God is preparing to hear the gospel, maybe even right now. Yet how many of us are hesitant to go to them with the gospel because of how uncomfortable it makes us? Maybe the Cornelius in your life today is outside of your comfort zone because they have an entirely different set of political values than you do. These are things you're passionate about. These are things that you believe deeply. And they believe the opposite. You may have learned to be civil with these type of people, but you keep them at an arm's length. Because what they believe politically and who they vote for politically rubs up against your set of values. Maybe the Cornelius in your life is outside of your comfort zone because of physical appearance. 
It's possible for some who've been raised conservatively to see piercings and tattoos and instantly categorize that person in their mind. You may remain respectful, but not hospitable. Maybe the Cornelius in your life is outside of your comfort zone because it's a family member or it's a co-worker that's sexually confused. Maybe even sexually broken. And that can show up in all sorts of ways. It's possible today that a combination of how you were raised and what you believe the the Bible teaches about sexuality and gender has led you to an overcorrection in how you interact with that demographic of society. Maybe you've been conditioned to isolate yourselves from these people instead of infiltrate their lives with the life-changing power of the gospel. Maybe the discomfort with your Cornelius involves economic status. Someone in your life who would very well be a seeker of truth right now, but they're in a tax bracket way above yours and that's intimidating. Or they're in a tax bracket way below yours. And they cross you as kind of needy and entitled to be taken care of by others. And you find yourself uncomfortable with getting too close or making yourself too available out of fear that you'll be taken advantage of. The point is that our circle of influence, our community, our world, even our church is full of seekers like Cornelius. They may be different than us in many ways, but God might be preparing them right now for salvation. And while he's preparing them, he's preparing all of us. Look at how he works to bring Cornelius and Peter together. Verse number three of chapter 10. He saw, talking about Cornelius, he saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, what is it, Lord? And he said unto him, thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. God knew Cornelius was seeking him. Verse 5. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. And when the angel which spake unto Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. And when he declared all these things unto them, he sent them. To Joppa. Do you see what happened? God comes to Cornelius because he's seeking. And God says, Cornelius, I want you to go find Peter. He doesn't tell him why. He tells him where. And so Cornelius sends two of his servants and one of his soldiers to go round up Peter. In the meanwhile, as they're making that journey, God is going to be speaking to Peter. That's the second movement of the text. Peter sees While Cornelius is seeking, Peter sees. Verse number nine. Look at verse number nine. Study with me today. On the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh into the city, Peter went up upon the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And he became very hungry and would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and a certain vessel descending unto him as it had been a great sheet knit out of the four corners and let down to the earth. Wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill, and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. 
And the voice spake unto him again the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. This was done thrice, three times. And the vessel was received up again into heaven. This is a very interesting passage of scripture. Peter receives a vision. He has no idea Cornelius's boys are headed his way. But he receives a vision, a vision from the Lord. And the Lord tells him to eat all kinds of meat without concerning himself with whether such foods are clean or unclean according to his Jewish dietary laws. We saw Peter's response. It's obvious he doesn't understand God, the, the symbolism that's at work. These unclean animals symbolize God's cleansing of the unclean Gentiles. Peter doesn't see that yet. Peter is refusing to obey the command how many times? Three times. That shouldn't surprise us. He has a history of three-time rejection. But let's sympathize with Peter for a moment. This would have been very difficult for him to even understand, let alone to obey, because food restrictions had isolated him and his people from the Gentiles for centuries now. It would have been shocking for him to hear that God wanted to break down those walls. And even more shocking, I would say, terrifying for Peter to hear that God wanted to use him to do it. To lead this revolution. So here's Peter pondering what he just saw. He's confused. And it's right about that time that a group of visitors show up at his gate. The text is going to tell us that they won't enter the gate because they know this is a Jewish man and we're Gentiles and we're not welcome. So the spirit of God speaks to Peter while he's inside and tells him that there's some men that have been sent to see him and that he shouldn't hesitate to let them in. This is amazing how God is working. Verse 17. Now, while Peter doubted in himself what this vision which he had seen should mean, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate and called and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Peter, were lodged there. While Peter thought on the vision, the spirit said unto him, behold, three men seek thee. Arise, therefore, and get thee down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men which were sent unto him from Cornelius and said, Behold, I am he whom ye seek. What is the cause wherefore ye are come? And they said, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man, and one that feareth God, and of good report among all the nation of the Jews, was warned from God by an holy angel to send for thee in this house and to hear words of thee. Then called he them in and lodged them. And on the morrow, Peter went away with them and certain brethren from Joppa accompanied him. So, so, so the men come to Peter. He lets them in. And then he tells, they tell him a bit about Cornelius. They tell him about the angel. They tell him about the whole purpose here. And then Peter lets them lodge in the house. Don't miss this. This hospitality offer may not seem like a big deal to us. But for Peter and other Jewish Christians, it signaled a huge gospel moment. What we're witnessing here is Peter being converted out of the thinking that the good news is for the Jews alone. Peter is starting to have his eyes open to what the Lord is trying to do in his life regarding the Gentiles. So he receives them into his home. This is huge. Not only did Peter give the men lodging, the next day he made a two-day journey to Caesarea and he took some brothers from Joppa with him, which brings us to the next moon in the text. The Holy Spirit comes. Cornelius seeks and 
Peter sees and now the Holy Spirit comes. We're going to read a lengthy portion here, but this is, this is amazing. Look at verse 24 and follow along with me, please. And the morrow after they entered into Caesarea and Cornelius waited for them and had called together his kinsmen and near friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. I love what Peter did. But Peter took him up saying, stand up. I myself also am a man. What humility. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many that were come together. And he said unto them, ye know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. But God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore came I unto you without gainsaying. As soon as I was sent for, I asked therefore for what intent ye have sent for me. And Cornelius said, four days ago, I was fasting until this hour. And at the ninth hour, I prayed in my house and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard and thine alms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call hither Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodged in the house of one Simon a tanner by the seaside, who when he cometh shall speak unto thee. Immediately, therefore, I sent to thee and thou hast well done that thou art come. Now, therefore, we all here present before God to hear all things that are commanded thee of God. You see what's happening? God is preparing a seeker. He's trying to change the life of a hippie. He's working in his life. At the same time, he's working in the life of an apostle. One who would have never been in the living room of a Gentile before this day. And he's bringing them together so much so that the Gentile says to Peter, teach me. Everything that God has taught you and commanded of you, show me the way. And Peter, Peter, just like he did in Acts chapter 2, took time to preach the gospel. By the way, if a seeker says, teach me. You better teach them. We don't, sometimes we don't need to be like, well, let me, let me go study up for this. Let me go call Pastor Tyler and I'll set up a meeting for you. Christian, you preach. Know your Bible well enough that if somebody approaches you and says, how can I know Jesus? You can show them. And Peter did. Verse 34, look at this sermon. You might not understand it all, but it's, it's good news. Then Peter opened his mouth. Yes, he did. And said, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. How how about that for a thesis statement? But in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word I say, you know which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee Galilee after the baptism, which John preached how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy ghost and with power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things, which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem who they slew and hanged on a tree. Here's the resurrection him. God raised up the third day. Showed him openly, not, not to all the people, but until witnesses chosen before of God, even to us, who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which, 
was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. To him give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him. Did you see that word? Whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. And look at verse 44. While Peter yet spake these words, there were some people believing because the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision, the Jews, which believed were astonished. As many came with Peter because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? The answer is no. Verse 48, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they or asked they him to tarry certain days. This is amazing. Peter preached the gospel to these Gentiles, the same gospel he's preached before to the Jews. Then Cornelius and the other Gentiles believed the gospel. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Their repentance was demonstrated by their willingness to be publicly baptized. And God's plan of reaching all people everywhere to the ends of the earth was coming to fruition. I don't want you to miss the magnitude of this moment in Scripture. This is huge. This is the first Jesus revolution. But I don't want you to miss maybe the greater point. Because in order for Cornelius and his friends to be converted, Peter had to be converted first. Not to Christianity, I'll say it again, to the implications of Christianity. Peter, an already saved man, had to be convinced that the gospel is for everyone, including those outside his comfort zone. Do you know that a few days earlier, Peter wouldn't have been interested at all in preaching this gospel to the Gentiles? Just a few days earlier, Peter would have been disgusted by the thought of these unclean Gentiles coming into his congregation. Yet God worked in Peter's life. God converted him of discrimination. God showed him that it wasn't his place to call somebody clean or unclean. God showed him he shouldn't be a respecter of persons. And God convinced him of this truth. All people can become a part of God's people. But Peter's only one man. Chuck Smith was only one man. God wants to convert an entire congregation. So we get to the final movement in chapter 11 and it's a pretty tense business meeting. And this is where we get to the last movement. The church joins in just not right away. Look at verses one and two. And the apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, They that were of the circumcision, these Jews, contended with him, saying, Thou wentest into men uncircumcised and did eat with them. Did you notice who was complaining? Who was criticizing? The apostles and brethren. Save people. People that have heard the gospel, believed, repented, and been baptized. And not just brethren, not just lay people. 
Apostles. Eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. People that wear a suit and tie on Sunday. People that would be teaching a Sunday school class. Leaders of the church. Looked at Peter. And said, what do you think you're doing? They couldn't wrap their minds around the fact that Peter would leave his Jewish roots to sit down and fellowship with with these unclean Gentiles. Their first reaction was a lot like those members of Calvary Chapel in 1969. This was outside of their comfort zone and they weren't interested. They don't want these Gentiles to be part of their congregation. But thankfully, Peter stood his ground. And as a good leader, he graciously began to reason with the congregation. And the way he went about that was he just told them the testimony of how God orchestrated all this. We won't read it, but it's in verses 3 through 16. He said, God did this for Cornelius. God did this for me. Then God did this with both of us in the same room. And after he told the testimony, he had what I would call a mic drop moment. To the apostles and the brethren who are criticizing them. Verse 17. Look at chapter 11, verse 17. For as much then as God gave them the light gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the mic drop moment. What was I that I could withstand God? In other words, who am I to get in the way of what God is doing in their lives? Who am I to dictate who is clean and unclean in this church? Who am I to cause unnecessary division where God wants to bring unity? Who am I to get in the way of God changing a life just because that person is different than me? You would think that these apostles and brethren would stand up, fold their arms like a good Baptist would, turn their back on Peter and say, we're going to go start our own church then. But look how they responded in verse 18. When they heard these things, they held their peace. Every complaining church member needs to memorize that phrase. And glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. There wasn't a church split. There wasn't long-tenured members walking out in mid-service. There was unity of spirit and attitude in this church about the fact that all people can be a part of God's people. Peter was converted from discrimination and now this congregation was as well. And this friends is the first Jesus revelation because the rest is history. In fact, it was this moment in church history that it made it possible for us as non-Jews in Southwest Kansas to eventually receive the gospel a couple thousand years later. Do you understand that? This was the start, not of a local, but of a global Jesus 
revolution. What does that say to us today? Three statements and I want you to take these home with you. Number one, God is more interested in the hearts of people than the way they look. As the Bible says in 1 Samuel 16, man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. We're so prone to make judgments about people based on the way they look, the way they dress, their ethnicity, how much money or education they have. But what would it look like, friend, if instead you were aware that each person you see is someone God loves? What if we really were convinced like Peter was convinced that God doesn't play favorites and he isn't a respecter of persons? How could our church be changed and our witness be enhanced if every member was truly converted from the spirit of discrimination? From being more concerned about someone's outward appearance than the condition of their heart. Here's the second thing we learn. Our standards of behavior shouldn't come between us and helping people. Let me be clear. I'm not at all saying that we abandon our our biblical standards of living entirely and become worldly Christians. We are salt and light. The effectiveness of salt and light is that they're different. We shouldn't shy away from, 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 from being different. But hear me, we also shouldn't shy away from people whose standards aren't just like ours. Simply because it makes us feel uncomfortable. Where do you get that from the text? Well, Peter had to step away from his dietary code. He had to step away from his cultural customs that he had been taught to keep his entire life in order to meet Gentiles where they were. Peter didn't sin one time. He didn't go against God's word one time. But he did leave behind a tradition and a custom in which he had been raised. It's no denying when you look at the text. Jesus taught in Mark chapter 7 about our tendency to preach our traditions as though they're doctrines. We can so easily put more emphasis on our holiness before God being determined by our adherence to a standard or a tradition more than our holiness beginning on the inside of us and then working out. That's why Jesus in Mark 7 taught his disciples and these Pharisees that holiness comes from a clean heart, not clean hands. Right after he taught that, you know what Jesus did? You can read it. He ministered to a Gentile woman who would have been considered off limits for him to help. I wonder today if there's a political or even denominational tradition that has become such a big deal to you that it keeps you from taking the gospel to those who don't hold to that same tradition or standard of behavior. Or let me just press this into our church. Might there be a religious or denominational tradition that is less than clear in scripture that our church treats like orthodox doctrine? I don't want there to ever be a tradition or standard that we emphasize or adhere to with a spirit of inflexibility that might over time hinder our witness for Christ in our local community. Lord, rid us of that. 
Church traditions aren't bad. Various standards that are upheld even in the church aren't bad. But they can become bad when they loom so large within our congregation that a spirit of discrimination creeps in towards anyone who is different in those particular areas or less passionate about them. God help us. Third, and maybe the key application, we must become willing to step outside our comfort zone in order to speak the gospel. Peter left what he knew. The 30 miles that he walked from Joppa to Caesarea was the shortest part of his journey. Stepping into a Gentile's house and eating meat with a Gentile was the longest step for Peter. Here's the point. God never says that sharing our faith will always be easy or comfortable, but that shouldn't stop us from doing it. So get to know that difficult coworker. Meet that neighbor who keeps to himself. Befriend the other parent at school who annoys you. Shake the hand of the citizen who votes differently than you. Get to know someone who's not like you. Love them. Pray for them. Bless them. And seek opportunities to share Christ with them. Why? Because all people can become a part of God's people. I want to leave you today with a quote by actually a pastor who's going to be preaching at our Amen Conference next year. Kurt Skelly. He says this. When we only love the people that are just like us. We actually engage in self-love because we simply love our own reflection. Today, you're one of two people, perhaps, in our text. Maybe you are Cornelius. You're a seeker. You know something's missing in your life. And you came to church and you sense that what some have here, you don't have yet, but you want. You may even be religious, just like Cornelius. But you know that's not enough to be reborn. You need Jesus. You need to stop relying on on your good deeds, on your good works, on your benevolence, even on your baptism as a child, if that's a reality for you. And you need to learn to rely on Jesus and Jesus alone. If you are a seeker, you are in a place where you are welcome to come. We welcome you. We will not force Jesus on you, but we will invite you to accept him into your life today. Or maybe you are like Peter. You're saved. And you don't need to be be saved from your sin. You need to be saved from a spirit of discrimination that's in your heart. And and you know what's unique? Peter would have never knew he had a spirit of discrimination had God not went the length to show him. Why? Because most people who discriminate don't know they're doing it. You need the help of God and I need the help of God to see any, any, just any flake of discrimination in us. And by the way, that discrimination doesn't just fall in the category of racism. There's so many other ways that especially conservative Christians, Bible-believing Christians can discriminate if they don't guard their heart from it. 
and they will justify it. Justify it in all kinds of ways. But it is a sin that God detests. Because he says this clearly, it is not your job to determine what's clean and unclean. Jesus died for all. And if that is not your conviction, when I say conviction, I'm saying you're convinced of it. Then you might have the same spirit Peter had and not even know it today. God, forgive us of that and help us. That's the message. Would you stand to your feet?